Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hope you had a wonderful weekend, and we're really glad you've started off your work week with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready. Good, bad, and crazy martinis coming right up. And Jim, Joe Biden actually did it. The presidents of the past couple of decades or more have all kind of hinted that they were about to declare uh, the Ottoman Empire's slaughtering of Armenians uh, roughly 100 years ago from 1915 to 1923, a genocide, but they could just never quite get around to it. It almost reminds me a little bit of presidents promising to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and nobody did it until Trump did it. And now nobody's called this a genocide uh, until Joe Biden. Uh, He released a statement on Saturday saying, each year on this day, we remember the lives of all those who died in the Ottoman-era Armenian genocide and recommit ourselves to preventing such an atrocity from ever again occurring. Beginning on April 24, 1915, with the arrest of Armenian intellectuals and community leaders in Constantinople by Ottoman authorities, one and a half million Armenians were deported, massacred, or marched to their deaths in a campaign of extermination. He says we honor the victims. Uh, and he says, as we mourn what was lost, let us also turn our eyes to the future, uh, the future that we want to uh, build for our children. But he did, again, in the final sentence, say the American people honor all Armenians who perished in the genocide that began 106 years ago today. So Jim, as a good Greek boy, he had me at the reference of Constantinople. But I mean, this is uh, this is important. And some people might think it's a century ago. Who cares what terminology you call it? It's important to get facts right. It's important to get history right. And uh, you can tell by the uh, really annoyed reaction of Prime Minister Erdogan over there in Turkey uh, that it does matter. So uh, we don't say good job, Joe Biden, much at all and for a lot of good reasons. But on this one, good job. Yeah, and it's also a a really clear indicator of the changing nature of the relationship between the United States and Turkey. Longtime listeners probably know that I lived over there from two, in Turkey from 2005 to 2007. Uh, under Turkish law, it is illegal to speak of the Armenian genocide. And in all of the English language and other print uh, papers over there, you would see references to the so-called Armenian genocide in quotes on every single reference. Um, now, look, what happened back then was a genocide. Yeah, pretty much. There's really not much disputing. For a long time, the Turks have said, well, lots of people died on both sides, which is technically true, but not really a full picture of the events. But for a long time, the United States did not recognize it. Um, I suppose Ronald Reagan made once a reference to the genocide of the Armenians in a speech once, but there was never any official declaration. And there's certainly no reference in the U.S. policy or official U.S. documents. that This was our perspective of what happened. And why did we pretend that it wasn't really a genocide? Because we wanted to be on a good relationship with the Turks. They were a member of NATO, and they still are. Uh, They were the only Muslim democracy, and I think that's probably debatable now today. They were a reliable ally, which is a very debatable uh, sense today. In fact, I think most people would say they're not a reliable ally. Injulik Air Base over there was really important for uh, Middle Eastern activities. And you can probably go back into the archives and find something I would have written in, oh, 2005, 2006, 2007, somewhere in the, in the second term of Bush saying, yeah, when, when Nancy Pelosi was among those ba- banging the drum saying it is time for the United States to recognize the Armenian genocide. You could say this is Nancy Pelosi's you know, desire to honor the truth and not to sacrifice it in the name of uh, political alliances, but uh, no, actually, she's got a lot of Armenian Americans in her district, and that was the driving force for her. But you know, and for most, of the perspective of the Bush administration is: look, we've got a lot going on in the Middle East. We don't want to antagonize 
one of the few reliable allies we have. Fast forward a presidency or two, and it's pretty clear the Turks are not reliable allies. And it's one of those things where the more antagonistic Erdogan becomes to American interests and to a good portion of our, our you know, European allies and, and other folks, that it becomes less worth it to us to pretend to not, we didn't notice that there was a genocide that occurred back then. It is worth noting that that was the Ottoman Empire. Modern Turkey is a different state, although I think the uh, the state of the, the political and legal restrictions on honest discussion of this indicate that perhaps the Turkish nation is not quite as willing to confront the uglier aspects of its past as we would like them to. Now, you know, Americans don't necessarily like talking about our treatment of the Native Americans or slavery or the internment camps of the Japanese. You know, it's never great to easy to look at the, the ugly you know, chapters of your nation's history. But in Turkey, it's like, no, no, it just it didn't happen. No, no, it's all it's just a lot of people got dying. Terrible war, terrible, you know. Um, look, I think this is probably due. And it's a useful signal to Turkey and to Erdogan and say, look, uh, and also probably to the Turkish people as well, to say that, look, as long as you had a reasonable level of cooperation with us, we were not going to pick at this scab and make a, make a big deal out of it. Without Erdogan cooperating on any of our priorities, there's really no point in us pretending to not acknowledge this. And we probably should honor the historical truth. So the calculus has changed. I think this is our policy catching up to the fact that um, there's a consequence to the way Turkey behaves. And one of those consequences in is we feel less obligated to go along with their perspectives on historical fights that probably seem very distant to the average American. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, the best way to make sure things like that don't happen again is to acknowledge that they happened in the first place. I mean, it's 100 years ago. It's not like you're going to get a parade of sanctions uh, against Turkey as a result of that. Now, if Erdogan keeps misbehaving, there might be sanctions for other things. But uh, it's uh, just having an accurate historical record and knowing what you want to avoid in the future is very, very critical. All right. Let's talk about Headspace. Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that helped you sleep and focus, act, and just kind of have a better day? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. So whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Well, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Do you need some help falling asleep? Well, Headspace has a wind-down session that their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations that you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And as I mentioned before, our chief of operations here at Radio America says that several hosts have used uh, Headspace, uh, and especially during the pandemic year, helped them sleep better, helped them focus better. You know, a lot of things were changing last year, and, and having the Headspace app was, was definitely a plus for them. So Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and more than 60 million downloads. Feel happier. Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash martini. That's headspace.com slash martini for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. It really is the best deal they're offering these days, so head to headspace.com slash martini today. All right, Jim, we've got another uh, historical figure to talk about in our second martini today. He doesn't go back all the way to 1915 or 1923, thankfully. We had enough horrible people back then, <laughs> Woodrow Wilson. But uh, John Kerry, uh, John Kerry, of course, became an ignoble figure back in the early 1970s by testifying before Congress and uh, calling U.S. troops reminiscent of Genghis Khan. And he seems to be cavorting in some ways with the enemy again. This time it's Iran. And the situation is that Kerry 
who, of course, is a former Secretary of State, and now he's this nebulous climate envoy. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he, of course, has had plenty of dealings with the Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad uh, Javad Zarif. And according to a story in The New York Times, which wasn't really about this, in fact, Ed Morrissey over at Hot Air points out that this showed up in paragraph 21 in a 26-paragraph story. Uh, it says, former Secretary of State John Kerry informed Zarif that Israel had attacked Iranian interests in Syria at least 200 times, to his astonishment, Mr. Zarif said. And so, essentially, Jim, uh, John Kerry is telling our enemy, the world's number one sponsor of terrorism, what kind of covert missions Israel is carrying out in Iran's proxy state of Syria. With friends like these, man. <laughs> Who needs enemies? Yeah, uh, Greg, I, I mentioned in the corner, I characterized this as the lesson of this is never tell John Kerry anything. Um, <laughs> the, so you look, the, the, it's in, you're right, the New York Times indisputably buries, if not the lead, then a very, you know, a significant, important uh, aspect of the story. The rest of it about uh, Mohammad Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, uh, describing his rivalry with the late Qasim Soleimani, formerly arguably the most powerful man in Iran, certainly the most powerful man in there. Um, terrorism operations and military operations and, uh, uh, you know, subterfuge all around the Middle East, um, who's now a red smear on the side of the highway uh, by the Baghdad airport. Um, Kusame Soleimani, you know, apparently was undermining every peace effort and working closely with the Iranian, with the, uh, both the, with the Russians and basically being this one man force for chaos in the Middle East. And of course, all of this kind of undermines this argument we've seen over the last couple of years from those who wanted greater engagement with Iran, because here is Zarif saying, look, I'd love to engage with the West better. I'd love to get nuclear talks going, but you know, Soleimani wouldn't let it happen and did everything he could to undermine it. And maybe that assessment's self-serving, uh, but it, it's, you know, it's kind of you know, one of those indications of like the interesting question of who really runs Iran and does it, does it do any good to have uh, peace talks or you know nuclear talks with quote unquote you know, sensible centrists or moderate reformers or something like that, if they don't really have the power to to hold up their side of the bargain when they, if we do reach a bargain with these guys. Now, that's a big story. But I also think this is just lying at the in the middle of it. Former Secretary of State John Kerry informed Zarif that Israel had attacked Iranian interests in Syria at least 200 times to his astonishment, Mr. Zarif said. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and the fascinating thing, I'd love to know whether this was official U.S. policy, whether this was approved by President Obama, this was the idea, well, we are going to win over the Iranians by spilling the beans on what the Israelis have done. And this is a uh, deliberate effort. We're going to betray one group that is one nation that is our ally, Israel, in order to improve relations with a country that is by no stretch of the imagination our ally, Iran, or you know, which, which would be bad. That would be a very bad outcome. But the other one, Greg, is that this is just John Kerry freelancing. And he wasn't authorized to tell any of this kind of stuff. And that this is just John Kerry, you know, loose lips, sinking ships, and just kind of blathering this stuff out. By the way, I would assume that every time an Iranian interest in Syria blew up, there, you know, the Iranians said that was probably the Israelis. We, we should not overstate the, the intelligence loss here. I suspect the Iranians, you know, strongly suspected it was the Israelis. But for the John Kerry, like, oh, yes, indeed, that was the Israelis. You know, yeah, you're Zarif, let me tell you, they really got your bad on that one. But let me, you know, like, that is not um, consistent with U.S. interests. And it's really either scenario, the idea that the Obama administration was, okay, let's let the cat out of the bag about what we know about what the Mossad or the Israeli defense forces are up to. Uh, or that Kerry decided, huh, 
Zarif, you're not going to believe what I heard in my intelligence briefing this morning. You really should know this, but I got to tell you, you know, that kind of stuff. Either scenario is really bad. Um, it makes me just want to restart the carry spot all over again. Good thing he's out of government. Oh, wait, he's back in government as global climate czar, or whatever the hell his title is these days. <laughs> yeah, and the other day he said we had to eliminate carbon dioxide. I got news for him. Uh, first of all, you're not you're not going Stop to. Stop talking. <laughs> you're you're going to have some real Hold problems. Hold your breath, John. Let's see how we do. You think you've got real climate problems now, which you really don't. Uh, get rid of carbon dioxide entirely. Then you'll have some real climate problems. But uh, I seem to remember the Obama administration. I don't remember if it was through Kerry. I, I seem to remember Leon Panetta doing this once or twice. Just kind of publicly mentioning casually, oh, yeah, the Israelis are thinking about striking an Iranian nuclear facility soon. Uh, just kind of, you know, uh, kneecapping any clandestine effort to do such a thing. But uh, You're going to watch the, the skies to the north, let me tell you, probably between like 6 and 8 p.m. tomorrow. Just That's what I'm hearing. You know. Not helping. If anybody ever does a biography of John Kerry, and I'm certainly not encouraging such a thing, not helping or making things worse would be a great title because... I honestly can't think of a single thing he's ever made better in public life. All right. With that delicious news, uh, let's talk about something far better than that. And that's the comfort you'll get with my slippers. Look, my pillow took two years to develop these things to make sure they're very high in quality and comfort. And right now at MyPillow.com, you can get 40% off these slippers with the promo code Martini. My slippers are durable. You can wear them all day, indoors, outdoors, wherever you like. They have beautiful leather suede, they have cozy faux fur linings, and they come in moccasin or slip-on style. They are available in a variety of colors. They have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. They also have a three-tier cushioning system that my feet are very grateful for. They've got the MyPillow patented fill, the comfort memory foam, the patented impact gel, Put them all together, super comfortable slippers. For a limited time, MyPillow offering 40% off the new My Slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets. But you can only save that 40% on the new My Slippers with the promo code MARTINI. Call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, I believe we're getting a uh, speech from Joe Biden to what's going to pass for a joint session of Congress later this week to mark his 100 days. Uh, I assume Vice President Harris will be there. We know where she's not, though, uh, at the border or in any country sending lots of people to the border. Uh, she was tapped very publicly by Joe Biden to head up the administration's response to this, has not held a press conference, as far as I know, hasn't even announced a team that she's consulting with. We don't know if she's doing much or what she's doing, if she is doing anything. You don't have to do things publicly to be actually working on stuff, but she keeps giving very evasive answers on whether she's headed to the border or headed to Latin America. And now we have this from the New York Post. Vice President Harris hasn't been to the border to address a crisis she was tasked to help fix, but a children's book she wrote is waiting there for young migrants who are being welcomed into the country. Unaccompanied migrant kids brought from the U.S.-Mexico border to a new shelter in Long Beach, California, will be given a copy of her 2019 children's book, Superheroes Are Everywhere, in their welcome kits. It's just the latest open-arms gesture by the Biden administration whose mixed messaging regarding the border and immigration has been credited with the surge from Central America to the U.S.-Mexican border. So, Jim, 
actually doing the job? Eh, not a lot of interest in that, it would appear. But she'll drop the paperback version of her kid's book off for these migrant kids to take a look at. Yeah, now when this story first broke over the weekend, I saw a lot of people reacting with, with great anger, saying, that's taxpayer money. Well, we don't know. It very may, it may very well have been provided by volunteers or nonprofit groups or something like that. The, the kind of quote unquote, you know, gift bags or things that they're uh, giving to migrant children who are uh, in being currently in, in convention centers, I believe is where a lot of them are being held. Uh, and that's not ideal. I, I you know, it speaks more about the bad judgment of these nonprofits or volunteer groups that say, oh, you know, we should give them, you know, this this children's book by Kamala Harris. You know, the fact that they are so tone deaf and don't recognize that this appears to be bringing people over, uh, you know, a policy that encourages people to come over that announces you're not going to do deportations for 100 days. Thankfully, that policy was struck down by a judge and that basically says, hey, here we are. Uh, you know, welcome to this country. Oh, and here's, you know, a book by the vice president. Aren't we terrific? You know, it's, it's rather uh, wildly tone deaf. I think the bigger deal is not just the, I mean, the, the not going to the border seems like again, a very unforced error. Because as long, until she does this, the administration is going to get grief about it. I, I have this nagging feeling that you kind of wonder how much Kamala Harris wanted this job, because there are two things that the administration can do at the border. They can either uh, step up enforcement and say, you know what, sorry, we, we've created an impression that there's an amnesty going on. We don't want people to cross the border. Don't come over here with your kids. Don't send your kids unaccompanied. If you do, you're going to end up in a detention camp. We're going to try to keep you guys separated, but there's no way we can keep up with COVID-19. You're coming over in way too many. Like This is a, this is a no-win situation because either you end up saying a bunch of things people don't want to hear or you don't say it and the situation just keeps getting worse. We're going to find out probably... In a couple of days into May, we'll see what the numbers are from Customs and Border Protection on the southwest border. I think it was 172,000 um, uh, enforcement actions uh, people they encountered uh, last month. We'll see if it's a little higher. We'll see if it's a little lower. Nobody's expecting it to drop all that dramatically. So you know, this administration, unless it's willing to take some sort of action that is going to really disappoint its base and the amnesty advocates, is really going to be, it's in between a rock and a hard place. And I had this this periodic wondering whether Kamala Harris really wanted this particular duty, except when the president says, "This is, I want you to handle this for me. There's not much you can say, uh, much you can do about it. I thought it was very interesting that when uh, Maya Rudolph hosted Saturday Night Live and they did the Kamala Harris sketch, the, the Biden impersonator person was like, you know, and, and uh, Kamala, I want you to take care of the border for me. And the, the Maya Rudolph's impression, you know, impersonator says like, oh, really? And what will you be doing, Joe? You know, kind of suggesting that sense of like, oh, you're shoving the worst duty in this entire administration so far onto my plate. I have to figure out how to deal with it. This is a no-win situation. Nobody's going to like what I do. And I kind of get the feeling that Kamala Harris's way of dealing with this is to just not deal with it all that much, not taking the trip to the border. I think if you take the trip to the border, she'd probably feel obligated to take questions. There's no way for her to defend what the, the border policies that are being enacted now there's no way to rectify it with her previous criticism of the Trump administration. It's just too similar. And so she's kind of in this Kobayashi Maru no-win situation. And I think her way is to simply not play the game and thus go to New Hampshire and go up and check out a border. Yeah, not the border we were thinking of. Uh, and to not do interview. Like she, she's done one roundtable event at the White House on this. If she's given any large speeches or, or lengthy interviews on this, I, I've missed them. Um, this is she does not seem like a woman who's relentlessly focused on the border issues right now. She has had some phone calls with Central American leaders. But, you know, look, it's going to take a while for the administration to get its arms around this.
And every day that she's associated with this policies, she's going to be seen as a loser. So I think she just is like, you know, kind of closing her eyes and trying to get anybody to talk about anything else. And it's probably not going to work, but it becomes more and more ludicrous. This is, you know, clearly in polling the weakest spot for the Biden administration so far. And I think you know, you, there's no way to believe that ignoring this problem is going to make it go away. No, not at all. And I, I did see some of that polling over the weekend that you're referring to. Uh, overall, Biden, I think, is at 54 percent approval. This was a Fox News poll. But on the border, he's either mid to high 30s or maybe right around 40 percent. So I think as long as overall they're they're still doing well, they're probably not going to spend a lot of time calling a lot of public attention to it. But uh, she's clearly not uh, making this a, a high priority. My only question here, Jim, on a much lighter note, is whether this is uh, tackier or whether uh, Barack Obama giving an iPod full of his own speeches to Queen Elizabeth is uh, is a worse welcome gift. I think it's probably Obama's. Yeah, I mean, like this is one's a policy decision and kind of avoiding it. The other one is is you know like just just egomaniacal. So you know, as CNN would say, one's an apple and one's an orange. <laughs> uh, kids, I know you're destitute. I know you've come across the border with people who are probably not good people. Your parents, you have no idea where they are. But we got good news for you. We've got a kids book from Kamala Harris waiting for you on your cot. So everything, ah. everything's going to be fine. Jim, happy Monday. Uh, how long till Friday, Greg? <laughs> Too long. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're very grateful for your very kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Remember to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Again, have a great day, and please join us Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.